Throughout the Bible, throughout Christian history and Christian teaching, and even Christian art, the broad path and the broad way, and the narrow path and the narrow way have come to to signify the way to life on the one hand, or the way of death on the other hand. And in all of this media, in all throughout Christian history and in the Bible itself, the choices put before would-be followers of God. Which will you choose? Will you choose life on the one hand or will you choose death? Of course, the very first instance of this is in the book of Genesis in chapter 2, where God speaks to, to the newly formed uh, man and woman, to Adam and Eve, and he says, Do not, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for that way will be death. But choose instead to walk with me in obedience and in love, to live in rich relationship with me, and you will have life. And then as the narrative of scripture continues, and we see that mankind did in fact choose to turn away from God, to disobey him, and as sin permeates this world, and as God begins to unpack his rescue plan for humanity, We see this man, Moses, who comes forward, who God uses to rescue his people out of Egypt, to bring them into relationship with himself, to draw them to Mount Sinai, where he begins to communicate the law of God to them and their half of the covenant relationship that God is bringing them into. At the end of speaking these words to to the people as they're about to enter the promised land, in chapter 30, uh, verse 19 of Deuteronomy, Moses speaks these words to the people. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And now, of course, the the story of the Bible, the first half of the Bible, that Old Testament, is fraught with disappointment after disappointment and continuing human sin after continuing human sin, all the while looking forward to something so much better, as God promised, a redeemer, a rescuer. And here, now in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus who is the fulfiller of the law and the prophets, according to Matthew 5, verse 17. He's the one who speaks to us and who begins to conclude his sermon with these same themes and these same words. And he's come to us as the one that every prophet in Scripture prophesied about. He's the one that all of the Bible pointed to. He's the one that all of Scripture aims at, the one who alone can bring us life that is truly life to cause us to walk in the wholeness and the love and relationship with God that we're made for in his eternal kingdom. And he stands before us and he drives us towards his ultimate place of decision. He says, will we follow him? Will we follow him in his words and his teaching on the path of life? Or will we reject it? We turn away from it and we'll reap destruction. This morning we're going to unpack Jesus' teaching about the narrow and the wide gates. But I think in some ways what we see here will be surprising to us. Because as difficult as these words are, I think as we look at them, we're going to find that they're a little different than we at first expect. And actually they're more difficult than we at first expect. And yet at the same time, I hope that you'll see that they are, yes, more difficult, but also more full of grace and mercy and invitation and hope as Jesus draws us into life that is truly life as followers of himself. So we're going to do this now in two parts. We're going to look first at the broad way, 
And then second, we're going to look at the narrow way. And then we'll conclude by just drawing out some of the implications and the, uh, and, and the applications for us in our own Christian lives. So number one, look at our first point. What is the broad way in verse, seven, or verse 13 of chapter 7? Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. And what is the broad way that Jesus speaks of here? Well, on the one hand, I think a common way of thinking about it, at least a common way for me, is by drawing reference to those old Disney cartoons. Maybe some of you haven't even seen those before. Those old cartoons where you had the red and the cunning devil that would pop up on one character's shoulder, and then the white and kind of the, the, the wimpy um, plaintive angel that would appear on the other shoulder. And the red devil, of course, would seek to uh, persuade the character to, to take this course of action that was unsavory, perhaps, but also attractive. It looks kind of good. Seems like it would be interesting and maybe enjoyable. And then the angel, on the other hand, would, uh, would speak words of, of doing the right thing to the character. And I always got the impression as I watched these two characters that, um, that actually if the character listened to the angel, they'd be missing out on something, that they'd be losing out, that they would be held back from greater enjoyment in their lives. I think that's kind of the image that was meant to be portrayed. ACDC, of course, in their rock anthem, Highway to Hell, I think popularizes that sentiment and maybe takes it and, and immortalizes it in a rock song. You know, that they're declaring with joy the way that they're on the broad path, uh, pursuing things that God wouldn't like, but that are, uh, in the moment, very enjoyable, at least as they are portraying it. That's on one hand, obviously, the way that, that popular culture and media understands these two images. But the Christian perspective is, of course, different. And it's been popular portrayed throughout all of Christian history in uh, a number of different ways. But one that's very, very popular is like this. I was talking to my wife recently, and uh, she made reference to a picture that I didn't know about, uh, a German drawing, a German painting. And it's this riveting, old, and very popular German painting. You can see it here. And it looks sort of like uh, these two paths. It's a description of these two paths in this passage. And it looks like these two paths are in the Alps. So it's interesting to me that they lifted uh, the image right out of Palestine and brought it into the Alps. It is more picturesque, I do admit. And there are little villages along the way of each path. One path goes over the mountains towards rainbows and trumpeting angels, and the other towards stormy clouds and smoke and fire and terrifying demons. The whole picture is very detailed and filled with beautiful references to Scripture. That's commendable. But it's also interesting in the way that it signifies the meaning of each path by what's portrayed there. The broad path is next to the theater. Of course, the theater is place, uh, no place for Christians unless they're meeting in them on Sunday mornings, apparently in the mind of the artist. The broad path is next to the saloon, next to the casinos. The people that are wealthier, that have a little bit better clothing, are going up the broad path. Uh, maybe keeping more for themselves and spending less in the interests of others. On the other hand, the narrow path goes past the church and some open-air preaching and a specially built building for adult Sunday school. And according to this image here, this is just one, I think, that represents many, many images like it. The broad path is populated with people that do things that God forbids. That do things that God forbids, or at least the artist thinks about God forbidding. And the narrow path is full of the things that God approves, full of people doing the things that God approves. But here's a question for you. 
Is that what Jesus is talking about here? Is the broad way referring to actions that God doesn't like? Is that what this is about? Well, not exactly. You see, Jesus doesn't teach us merely to do certain things and avoid others in the Sermon on the Mount. That's not what he speaks to us. What Jesus calls us toward is something that is more difficult and different than that. Throughout the sermon, Jesus has been teaching us about righteousness that isn't just external, but that is internal. Not just doing the right things out here, but loving the right things, loving God from the heart, loving others from the heart, and having a wholeness of person that from the inside to the outside desires and lives for the will of God. In Matthew 6, Jesus clearly illustrated this uh, with a couple of examples. Number one, he showed the way that the problem isn't just murder. God's not just saying, hey, you haven't committed murder. Check the box. You are a righteous person. No, God cares about what's happening in your heart. Are you a person who's filled with hatred and bitterness towards others? That's what matters. The inward person matters. And of course, the next example that he gives in Matthew 6 is adultery. God's just not saying, hey, great, good job, you haven't done, you haven't acted on your impulses and committed adultery. He's saying, no, what matters is the issues of the heart. What's going on inside of you? What's happening in the inward person in the heart? It's not just adultery that's an issue, it's lust. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus continues and he talks about this, this greater righteousness that he's going to be teaching us about in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, unless your righteousness exceeds that, Of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't come into the life that I am drawing you into. And here's the thing. If you were living in the first century, if you lived at that time, and you wanted to identify the people that lived by the book, that lived the teachings of scripture, you would look immediately at the Pharisees and at the scribes. They did all the right things. They were the standout A-plus holy people of the Jewish world. They lived head and shoulders above everyone else in their faithful commitment to obey scripture. And yet Jesus says about them, unless you're more righteous than they are, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then, of course, he goes beyond chapter 6 and he gets into chapter 7 and he teaches us continually about this greater righteousness that he's talking about. He says, even in your personal piety, it's not just your outward actions that matter, not just your external fasting and praying and giving. No, what God cares about is your heart and each of those matters. Are you living before him with an openness and an honesty and sincerity in the secret place as you receive his love for you as you worship and give yourself in love for him in all of your practice, not for the praise of others, but just for his, uh, for his sight, for his pleasure as you serve him. So given all of that, when Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 13, that the broad gate and way leads to destruction, he's referring in context not to this reprobate life that would make every rock star jealous. Now, he's not referring to that. He's actually referring to leading a religious life. To leading a religious life that looks good on the outside, that acts the right way externally, but that loves the wrong things internally that doesn't have a wholeness of heart before God, living for him and for his glory, receiving his love, loving him in return, and loving others. You see, the broad way is right actions without right love. The broad way is living the life of a Pharisee. 
So then on the other hand, we should ask, what's the narrow way? Well, let's look at verse 14. Jesus says, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What is the narrow way? Well, it's this. See, throughout this sermon, Jesus has been driving us to this different and deeper thing. Not this religiosity that checks boxes on the outside, right? But the heart orientation that is for God, a heart orientation that receives his love for us as our Father. With humility and openness, confessing freely before him, Father, I am not right in the inward places. I am a broken sinner. I am in need of your grace and thank you for offering it. I want to live wholeheartedly before you, knowing your love. The right heart orientation that Jesus speaks about is is receiving that love and then living it outward. Receiving the love from the Father and this openness and wholeness and extending it towards others. I've received mercy. How could I withhold it from others? I've received forgiveness. How could I withhold it from others? I've received generosity. I want to give generously to others. This right heart orientation that Jesus speaks of comes to Jesus in repentance and asks God to work in our hearts what we cannot work ourselves, knowing that he, Jesus, is the one who can fulfill in us what we can't fulfill in ourselves. You see, that's what God wants from you, Christ City. He wants this wholehearted devotion to himself from you. He doesn't want your money when he doesn't have your heart. He doesn't want your devotion and getting up at 5.30 a.m., being in the word and being in prayer when you're doing so out of this place of obligation and duty and not out of love and adoration for him. He doesn't want your spirituality when you love the praise of other people more than you love his praise, more than you love his glory. What Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount is a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees because it's a righteousness that's not just external, but a righteousness that is internal, that loves God from a pure heart. And here's our problem, Christ City. As we grow in our Christian lives, and some of you are brand new to the Christian life, so if you're not here right now, just know that it's coming for you. That one of, the, one of the pitfalls you can fall into is this. As we grow in our Christian lives, as we grow in following Jesus, the danger that we have isn't so much that we become uh, just hardened sinners like this, but that actually we become Pharisees. The problem, the danger that we face is that we are this far from becoming Pharisees at any moment. As we take heart and take joy and take pride in the external things in our lives while ignoring the inner issues of the heart, ignoring where our hearts are truly at before the Lord. We can become people who take our confidence not in God our Father and his abundant mercy showering down in us by his grace through Jesus, but we take confidence instead in our external actions and the way that we do certain things. For us in our lives, uh, we can become people quickly that, that love and that praise ourselves for our loud singing. And I got together with folks on Sunday. We praise God. And, and I'm just so confident that I did that thing. We take confidence maybe in our giving. I, I give to God. I, I've, I've given to him before. Uh, clearly, I'm somebody that loves him. We take confidence maybe in our eloquent prayers or, or our, our regular attendance of church gatherings and church things. Today, maybe we're doing that in a particularly uh, poignant way because we're patting ourselves in the back, perhaps, because we have endured Zoom for eight weeks. Clearly, we are righteous people that God is pleased with. We've gone through and checked, and checked those boxes. We can become 
religious Pharisees taking great confidence in our right understanding of the Bible and our right understanding of theology. I have read the right books and I think the right thoughts. Therefore, God is pleased with me. We can take confidence in our giving to those in need or our generosity towards the homeless or maybe our Bible plans or that we had a plan or that we read our Bibles at all. It doesn't take very much. And we become those who take pleasure and pride and confidence in the external and not the internal. And all the while, all the while, Christ said, God isn't looking at the external. He's looking at our hearts. You know, in Isaiah 29, verse 13, Isaiah speaks, uh, God speaks to Isaiah, um, to his people, through Isaiah to his people, and he warns them. He says, this people draw near with their mouth. They say the right things. They honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. See, the narrow way, the narrow gate is the way of living humbly before God from the heart. Not taking confidence in what is external, but living before him wholeheartedly with devotion in the heart, in the inner person. Later on in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22, Jesus, he drives all of this home for us. He drives it home for us in his interaction with the rich young ruler. And in that place, uh, Matthew records this. Look at it with me. And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, that's interesting. If you would be perfect, that's the same word that, that Jesus uses at the end of Matthew 5 when he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's a word that doesn't mean so much perfect in perfectly living right actions, but actually completeness or wholeness. If you would be whole, loving God without division from the inside to the outside. If you would be whole, Jesus says, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Do you see that? This man, he had all the right actions externally going on. And he comes to Jesus and says, hey, how can I have life? And Jesus, as he graciously answers him, he presses in deep, not to the external, but far beneath it into what's going on in the inner person and the heart. And Jesus exposes him. He says, look, you don't love God. You don't love me. Where your heart is set is on your possessions. If you would be whole, sell all those things. Leave those things behind. Come and follow me. Live for me with a whole heart. This man looked good on the outside, but he had a divided heart that showed that he was on the broad path. You know, Jesus says in this passage, I'm going to read it again. He says, enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. As we look at this and as we conclude, we realize if we've been, if you've been with us as, uh, through our series the last several months, you realize this isn't new material. 
Jesus has been saying this sort of thing throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount again and again and again. But here, maybe it's landing especially hard on you. He's drawing it to a conclusion. He's bringing us to a place of decision. Which way will we go? We choose life or we choose death? And maybe some of us are wondering this, man, how could I choose life? If I can't even get my actions right before God, then how could I possibly somebody that gets my heart right before God? How can I live what Jesus is asking here? Well, if that's, if that's you and if you're struggling in that place, then I have good news for you because this is where the words of Jesus and his gospel and his grace land on us so strong and so rich. Because he stands on the mountain and he says even these words, not with condemnation, but full of grace and invitation. He says them with his arms open wide saying, come to me. Coming to me, come to receive what I can give to you. Come to me to receive my forgiveness and my mercy and my grace. Let me do in you what you cannot do in yourself. You see, Jesus is the one who died for us in our sin. He doesn't require perfection. He pays for our sin by his own death on our behalf. And he rises from death by the power of the Holy Spirit in his resurrection life in order to bring us the same life as he unites us with himself and draws us into relationship with God as he pours out his Holy Spirit of love into our hearts to begin to change us, to begin to affect in us what we cannot affect in ourselves. It's the good news of the gospel. He invites us to do what he promises to equip us for. Not all at once. It's not going to happen overnight. But as you come to him in honesty and repentance and faith, Jesus will begin to do this work in you, to begin to change you. So what's required of us then? Well, I love the way that Isaiah 66 verse 2 says it. Isaiah 66 verse 2 describes the sort of person and the sort of attitude that we need to have before Jesus and that he describes in his sermon. Isaiah 66 2 says this, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, who is humble and contrite in spirit, the person who repents of sin, acknowledges our brokenness before God and comes to him with openness and honesty. The one, Isaiah continues, who says this, who, who trembles at my word, who hears Jesus' words, doesn't let them just pass over him, but hears them and has them land on, on them, and repents. Chris City, if you're someone right now and you feel the weight of Jesus' words and of Isaiah 66 verse 2 and you want to change, let me help you through that. The first step you need to make is you need to respond to Jesus' invitation. You need to respond to his invitation. Are you hearing him this morning? We can overcomplicate scripture so easily. We can make it so complicated, but Jesus begins in chapter 7, verse 13, and all he says is, enter in. Hear my words, begin to follow me, enter in. Will you respond? You start to seek to obey Jesus, to follow him as his disciple, to ask him for the help that only he can give. Second, will you start paying attention to your heart? And this is for all of us. We have a season right now where we've been slowing down and maybe we're going to speed up again in the next couple weeks. But don't waste this season. Slow down. Stop for a moment. Examine your hearts. Pay attention to your heart. God looks at the inner person. 
Do you love God? Do you love your neighbor or do you just go through the motions of religious practices merely to keep up appearances or to please others or to do it because it's just what you've always done your whole life long? Stop and consider what you really love and where your treasure is. Third, to respond to Jesus' words, we need to take time to repent. Come to God with honesty. Our Father loves to receive us in our honesty. Come to him saying, Father, I have not loved you as you have called me to. I am not the person that you want me to be. I am someone that is deeply sinful and has turned against you. Father, would you, would you receive me? Would you forgive me? I want to know your love and your grace in a richer and a deeper way. And then come to the Father through Jesus and come to the one who loves to give good gifts. Ask him, seek from him, knock and say, Father, would you begin to change me? Would you begin to work by the power of your Holy Spirit? Jesus, would you pour out your spirit on me? Would your love come into to my heart by your Holy Spirit so that a miracle would happen, so that I would stop living me and my life and instead it would be Jesus in his life and this wholeness that's described in the Sermon on the Mount that characterizes me, that I would concretely become a follower of Jesus day by day, step by step, and moment by moment. Would you help me? Would you show me where I can begin to obey today? Christ City, Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37, he says these words, I want to encourage you with them. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Christ City, would you come? Would you hear Jesus' words? Today, would you enter in, no matter where you're at, would you enter in and pursue him with renewed faith? Would you ask him to do in you what you cannot do in yourself, to his glory forever? Amen.